Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Happy Mother's Day. Um, let us pray. Father, we pray that the words that I say today and that the thoughts, meditations of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I want to lead in by um, saying Mary and I have been gone the last two and a half weeks writing. About 10 or 12 years ago, the elders had Wayne Huck in an elders meeting tell me that I was to produce essentially a book a year. Now, maybe it was seven years, I don't know. And so that has been our goal. Well, this year, the book is uh, a book on abortion, and I'm not writing it. Josh Congrove is writing it, and then I'm deconstructing what Josh writes. Is that, is that a good way of putting it, Josh? <laughs> so for the past six, seven months, Josh, Joseph, and I principally, with help from Jürgen von Hagen, Joseph uh, Spurgeon, um, Brian Bailey, we have been writing uh, a document on abortion that um, now it's at about 70,000 page or words. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> this morning I was about ready to print out my sermon, and the title of the sermon is The Baby Leaped in My Womb for Joy. And I looked down and I had said, the Bailey leaped in my womb for joy. <laughs> Speaking of Freudian slips. Um, and I want to mention this to you because that's what we were doing for the last two and a half weeks is just writing, 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 writing. And so it will, Lord willing, it'll be a book. And so you might think, well, what is there to say about abortion that hasn't been said? And the good news is there's a there's a tremendous amount to say that is never said, never. And you go, are you serious? And I say, yeah, I'm serious. And you say, what? And I say, most abortions that are committed and have been being committed for the last decades are abortions nobody talks about and nobody acknowledges, and they're hidden. And they're especially hidden by pro-life people. For a long time now, far and away, the principal way abortions have been committed is through hormones, through drugs. And surgical abortion is dying a quick death. And so when you see people outside of the abortuary downtown of Planned Parenthood, realize that they are protesting something which is not insignificant, obviously, but something which is not the main problem and hasn't been for a long time. Let me illustrate it by saying this. Back maybe 2016, I don't know exactly when it was, but China's health ministry released a statement saying that they had performed 330 or 350 million abortions. You remember them announcing that? And you know that many of those abortions were forced. The woman had no choice. It was the implementation of their one-child policy. Jürgen once saved a child by hiring a student that had gotten the doctorate over in Bonn to come back from China and be there while a baby was born that would have been aborted otherwise, and they then had him become the baby's godfather. That's how that child was saved. All right. What we don't realize is 350 abortions, but what you don't realize is they also announced that they have that they had implanted 350, approximately, million IUDs. You never hear anything about that from pro-life people. Nothing. And so what's the deal with IUDs? Well, the principal agency of IUDs is taking a child who has been created by God, who bears the image of God, who is living and keeping that child from attaching himself to his mother's womb. That's how IUDs worked. Now, slowly it's changed. They put copper, and then they put hormones. And, and so I, I am aware that 
you know, the methods that the hormones, that the drugs, that the mechanical devices work change. But a huge amount of this paper has consisted of doing a deep dive into the agency of various forms of what are called contraceptives, but are not contraceptives, but are birth control. Because under their use, one of the agencies is allowing, not allowing the child to implant. The child is created, and the child is not permitted to implant on his mother's uterus, her womb. Now, you might be skeptical, and of course you're skeptical. You never heard this. You know, it's like, no, that can't be true. So two things. Number one, um, when you read the Old Testament, you see the endless, endless mention of bloodshed on the part of the Israelites, not the Canaanites, the Israelites. It's all through the prophets. And when you see that even Solomon, at the end of his life, had Moloch erected in Jerusalem, and they took their babies and put it in the mouth of Moloch and burned their babies. God's people, under Solomon. When you read this, do you think to yourself, I'm glad I didn't live then? Or do you think to yourself, huh, this is a theme all through the Old Testament. I have a sneaking suspicion that this is my sin too. That's how you should always think about the sins of Scripture. You should never think, well, that was then. You know, and I'm so glad I don't do that, you know. What you should think is, how do I do that? I'm sure I do, (laughs) you know. This 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 is the first principle of biblical hermeneutics. You should think, this is a testimony to me of the nature of God's people. Now, how do I commit this sin? You all with me? And I remember reading that in the Old Testament, just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm glad I didn't live then. Those people were so bloody. Because it's all through the prophets. And then the day came when I thought, ha, ah, oh, abortion. Oh. Then I began to think more and more about abortion. Then I read a Yale biography of Margaret Sanger and birth control. And all of a sudden, this punk, which is what I was, (laughs) as a matter of fact, you know when this realization came to me? It came to me. This is is true. This is just an anecdote, okay? It came to me on top of an 80-foot yacht in Glacier Bay National Park right next to the love boat, looking at glaciers, seated on white leather, reading the biography, and it came over me. (laughs) I don't know why on earth I was reading up there in Glacier Bay. I mean, honestly, why not enjoy the yacht, you know? But I wasn't. I was reading Margaret Sanger's biography and angst-ridden. We had friends. It's a long story. It wasn't our yacht. We didn't have any money. They even flew us up there, (laughs) you know? But man, all of a sudden, the world became understandable to me. And I realized the denigration of womanhood that was foundational to Margaret Sanger's promotion of birth control. I realized how recent this was. Then I began to read church history, and I realized that nobody until the 1950s, anywhere in any Christian marriage, used birth control. No one. No one. And then I began to think about abortion. And so I'm telling you, All the talk about being pro-life in the United States of America for the last few decades has been largely inane. Because it has not read the Word of God. It has not read what the Bible says about children that woman is dignified to give life to. And I'm going to tell you, that's what we're writing about. And we've, we've even asked Benny to help. We've asked Megan to help. And let me tell you, that woman, <laughs> she went to Wheaton. Oh, yeah, buddy. She's done a deep dive into the IVF industry. 
for reasons that are very personal. And Jurgen has gone over and over. We've had Eric, we've had uh, Chris Connell go over the statistics. And it's now, what, about, I'm going to guess, 250 to 300 pages. And it's good. Well, this last week, something happened. Did you notice? And Joe Helt, remember he used to be here with his dear wife, Sarah. Anyhow, he puts up on Sanityville late, at, late in the evening uh, a, a link to Politico, which I actually read Politico. I don't read much, but I actually do keep track of Politico. And it's, they, have, they, have, uh, they have gotten the scoop even over the New York Times. When they came out with the New York Times, there was nothing on Google Newspaper, nothing on New York Times, nothing. Nobody knew about it. Politico got it. And they published it. And I immediately called Brian Bailey. I said, Brian, have you heard? You know, because he's an attorney. And he said, no, what? And I said, they're going to reverse Roe v. Wade. Are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. So I began to read to him from the opinion by Alito. It was fascinating. It was, like, it was like Brian had died and gone to heaven and been asked to write a brief against Roe v. Wade. I don't know if you've read it. It's good. What is bad about it is it, it makes all the points and then fails to make the main point, which is the Constitution of the United States. You know, not states' rights. All right? But listen, it's still God's blessing, and it's unbelievable. I've told people that there have only been two things in my life that have shocked, well, three things. Three things that have shocked me to death. And you know what one of them is, right? Mary Lee married me. <laughs> That's definitely one of them. Oh, I still have dreams where I want to marry Mary Lee. And then I get to. Seriously. Seriously. So, okay, I'll set that to the side. Okay, two shocks. Number one, the fall of the Iron Curtain. Nobody anywhere ever predicted that. You weren't alive at the time. Nobody saw it coming. And then the reversal of Roe v. Wade. God is in charge. God does what he wants. And if God wants to give Mary Louise to Lucas and Hannah, this is their privilege. You with me? There is no mistake in your life, not one. The question is whether you will live by faith. Okay? You hear me? And so I'm talking here about a blessing. The reversal of Roe v. Wade, I, I, I personally think it's almost certain. It might change in its dimensions, what's said. The votes might change. But I, I'd be surprised if it doesn't get reversed. And even if it doesn't get reversed, the very fact of that issuance of that brief, which is in, you know, in transition, the very fact of that release is cataclysmic to the state of constitutional law in this country. Okay? Now... I'm talking to Brian, and all of a sudden it occurs to me, oh no, we've been spending the last seven months writing a 70,000-word document. What on earth? You know, throw that one in the dumpster. You know, you just, it falls on you. Oh no, well that's, I guess that's passe now, right? You know, stupid us. What were we thinking? Then Brian says, no, 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 this is God's providence. This paper is precisely what needs to be released now to Christians. Because this paper shows that no, no, no. Heartbeat laws are inane. Now, we might need them as a transitional part in our legislative process. You understand? In other words, incrementalism is not always wrong. But does a human life begin with a heartbeat? Does a human life begin at week 15? Is a mother a moral agent when she hires someone to kill her child? 
Should she be prosecuted? Okay, y'all with me? And that's precisely what this addresses. And so all of a sudden it became very clear that God seven months ago had to start this process. Joseph Spurgeon's church asked for the presbytery to write a short statement and it just exploded. But that's why God had to do it. We didn't know it. And so we're putty in the hands of God. And it's such a sweet thing. So now we're coming to Mother's Day. And Josh Congrove... I would say, Josh, probably you and I have written four-fifths of it. Um, Josh got inspiration. So you can imagine a lot of the document is pretty heavy because it talks about death and death and means of death and the agency of hormones and, you know, the incidence of its agency being this and that and the number of people that would be killed by this if you had this number of breakthrough pregnancies with IUDs. You all with me? And so he got to the end and he said to himself, you know, we need to end with a vision of motherhood. So Josh wrote this wonderful section for the end. Now, it's been revised a bunch, and he's not going to claim it at this point, probably. You know, I don't know. You still think it's intact? Yeah, yeah. It is sweet how it's almost getting impossible to tell whether Josh or I have written something. You know, it's just, and it's been so sweet to work with Josh. And all of you should tell him thank you, because this isn't his day job. You know, this is his, uh, I don't know. What? Yeah, this is his calling, not math, you know. (laughs) And so Josh wrote this section on motherhood. And those of us that have been working on it, it's a committee of about 10 people, nine or 10 people, as we have met, we met this last week. What has become clear to us is that like everything else in life, you don't win battles by saying no, you win battles by saying yes. Have you noticed this about your temptations in your life? That you have a tendency to think you just need to just be firm and say no to yourself, right? And that's true. A lot of sin you get victory over by being disgusted with the horrors of your own heart, right? You heard that in the confession today. Um, But let, let me put it like this. If you're tempted to commit adultery, say physically, visually, you're tempted to commit adultery, and you say, I can't, cannot, I I will, you know, right? The real key is to love your wife. The real key is to love your wife. Because perfect love casts out all sin. And if you love your wife, then all of a sudden the horror of your temptations becomes so much clearer to you. The love of Jesus is what causes you to be able to stand for him on social media. You can't have some intellectual conviction that you need to be a faithful witness to Scripture. You have to love Jesus. You have to love Jesus. And so what Josh did was Josh decided that we need to end with a vision for motherhood. And so he wrote this beautiful vision for motherhood. I can't imagine who his wife must be. I mean, you've got to have a good wife to write a vision for motherhood, right? You know? So I think maybe Nisha had something to do with it. And isn't that true, that the way to say no to abortion is to say yes to womanhood? Because what is more of an effacement and a degradation of womanhood than abortion? 
And if you think about it, what's more of a degradation of womanhood than pornography? Because what pornography does is it removes fruitfulness from the equation. You realize that. It's like woman without fruit. It's so disgusting. You all see what I'm talking about. And so today, I want us to see what Scripture has to say to the present state, even after Alito's opinion, to the present state of pro-life Christians and their convictions in the church. Because you, you may not know that Scripture actually does address this issue that we face today. All right? In chapter 1 of Luke, it says this, verse 24 and 25. After these days, and so the angel has announced uh, her pregnancy, the pregnancy of Elizabeth to Zacharias, her husband, all right, you remember? And it says, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became, go ahead, say it, pregnant, okay? And she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, it doesn't mean men-men here. It just means people. It was disgraceful to not have children. You know, people get angry about this, and they say, well, that's an ancient patriarchal culture, and these people are fecundity insane and all this. No, 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 no. I've had several relatives I'm very close to who have been not able to have children. And they don't stop thinking about it and crying over it day after day, night after night. It is a horror to a godly woman to not be able to give birth. And everybody knows this. And what, Scripture's wrong for saying this? He looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. All right? Now, the other half of the story we have to see here is the half that is much better known. It's another miraculous pregnancy. Elizabeth was miraculous because she was too old to have children, all right? This one, it's because she was too young to have children. She was a pure virgin. And that's Mary. The blessed Mary, because the Bible says, from now on, all generations will call you blessed. So you haven't become Roman Catholic if you say, blessed Mary. All right? In Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, the angel of the Lord named Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced her pregnancy also. She asked how this could be because she was a virgin, and Gabriel explained that her pregnancy would be from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, listen to the angel's words answering Mary when she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? He says, and it's the angel who? Which one? Gabriel. Gabriel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. All right? Verse 34 Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You will conceive and it will happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will come upon you. That's how you will conceive. The Holy Spirit will conceive this child in your womb. All right? Then, as a confirmation of this miraculous announcement, Blessed Mary was also told of her relative Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, she's a relative. So she knows that Elizabeth is barren. All right? And so it strengthens Mary's faith by being told, your relative Elizabeth is also pregnant. No, no, I'm... And she... He says, and even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. First month, Elizabeth's told she'll become pregnant and have a child. When she learns she's pregnant, five months, she goes into seclusion. Six months, 
Her younger relative, Mary, is herself told by Gabriel she'll conceive and that her child will be by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary is also told about her relative Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. As soon as the angel leaves her, Blessed Mary sets out to visit Elizabeth. So our text is Luke 1, 39 to 45. Now, at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Is there any romance in this church? Any romance at all? Anybody sentimental in in the slightest? I know you're not, Eric, but is there anybody else here that is? Mathematicians and economists can't be romantic. Elizabeth, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So now what happened when Blessed Mary entered Elizabeth's house and greeted Elizabeth? Luke records when Elizabeth... Adam, Dr. Adam Spady, recorded. The doctor, Luke, the one who always tells us about the women and the children in his gospel. Luke records that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Then, after John the Baptist had leaped in his mother's womb, we are told more. After John had leapt, his mother was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke of Mary's blessedness, but also the blessedness of what? The fruit of her womb. Did you hear it? And blessed is the fruit of your womb. What is the name of that fruit? Come on. Can't hear you. Are you really ashamed to say the name Jesus? Why are you ashamed? What's the name of that fruit? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 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 Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Jesus. Now, note the order of things carefully. Elizabeth is at the end of her second trimester, and so it makes perfect sense that her preborn child is moving and that she can feel it. In first pregnancies, this generally happens 16 weeks or later. Second and third, the mother gets more attuned to her child, and it happens earlier. It can happen at 12 weeks after the first one, but generally the first one it's after 16. So there's nothing miraculous about John the Baptist moving in his mother's womb at this point. But note the order. First, entering Elizabeth's house, Mary calls out a greeting. Hello! Elizabeth! Hey! Second, the sound of Mary's greeting reaches Elizabeth's ears. She's in the house, and it hits her ear. Ah, that's Mary, she just said a lot, Mary's here, Mary's here. No cell phones, right? 
When the sound of Mary's greeting reaches Elizabeth's ears, John the Baptist then what does what? He leaps for joy. The greeting, the hearing, the leaping for joy. John's mother, Elizabeth, speaking from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares the fact of that leaping, but goes on to describe John's motivation. Saying this, verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. For joy. Note how Elizabeth connects her own hearing her hearing of Mary's greeting with her son's joy. I heard he leaped for joy. What beauty! It's beautiful! Mother and child in the womb are one. Mother and child in the womb are one. They're one. The mother bears the child in her womb. She feeds him in her womb. She protects him in her womb. She sings to him in her womb. She prays for him in her womb. And if you're Jill Crumb, she brings her womb child to church because it gives Jill Crumb joy to sit under the preaching of the word with her child present. Never forget Jill telling me this, what, 25 years ago. Never forgotten it. She brings her child to church so that her child sits under the preaching of the word. She caresses her child in the womb. She talks to her child in the womb. She is angry with her child in her womb. She is patient with her child in her womb. She sometimes wishes her child were not there in her womb. She sometimes is so very thankful to God that he is there in her womb. She tries to get him to adjust himself differently when he makes her uncomfortable there in her womb. She feels him living there in her womb. And sometimes she feels him dying there in her womb. And if she goes to have an abortion, he knows his mother is killing him. And he suffers. He knows it emotionally because he knows her. Something's wrong. He he knows that. And then he feels every single bit of his body being torn apart or scalded. Make no mistake about this. Mother and the child in her womb are one. When a mother is sad, her little one in her womb is also sad. When mother is joyful, her little one in her womb is also joyful. In other words, there is no bifurcation. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. John leapt because he was joyful. And this joy of his happened when the sound of Mary's greeting, his mother, reached his mother's ear. What do we learn from this tender scene of two mothers and little ones safely nestled within their wombs? Well, first we learn that Jesus our Lord has barely been conceived And he brings joy to Elizabeth, which she gives utterance to by her proclamation, blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Do you realize this? 
Remember, what did Mary do as soon as Gabriel told her about the pregnancy of Elizabeth? What did she do? It says she hurried. Right away, she hurried to her relative Elizabeth's house. But did you notice something? Did you notice that the angel Gabriel said this to Mary? He said, and behold, what? You what? You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. What is will, past, present, or future tense? It's future. When she's told about Elizabeth's pregnancy, she has not yet conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she hurries to Elizabeth's house. Now you tell me how old she was, or Jesus was, when she showed up. And Jesus caused joy and was blessed. How old was he? Huh? <laughs> Probably he had not implanted himself in his mother's womb. We don't know. It might have been a three-month walk. But distances weren't real great in Palestine, you know? And probably it was just a couple of days. And she left probably before the baby was conceived. Think about this. Think about it. There is no question that that baby was about the age where most Christians are happy to abort their children. Take morning after pills as one couple in this church did. They confessed it to me. Don't want to have a baby. Take morning after pills. And again, one of their agencies is preventing implantation. You know, we don't think of Jesus being conceived, do we? You know, we think of the virgin birth. And we think, well, yeah, the Holy Spirit did it. But you don't think about Jesus being an embryo, do you? You don't think about Jesus being conceived. You don't think about Jesus existing eternally. A second after the Holy Spirit conceives him in the womb of Mary. We're such epistemologically stupid people. We think that post-enlightenment, we have such wisdom and knowledge of how these things work. You know what I'm saying? We're just so conceited about our knowledge, scientific knowledge, you know? And we know that a baby that's conceived but hasn't implanted itself on the wall of the uterus does not exist. Right? We all know that. Because the standard since the 60s that has been promulgated by the College of OB-GYNs is that conception doesn't happen until implantation. They changed the definition. They changed the definition of conception officially. And so if you read the New York Times today, they will tell you don't worry about any of these hormonal methods of birth control because they don't cause an abortion. And then you look at and what they're saying is they only cause the prevention of implantation. So, so how old was Jesus? And was Jesus Jesus when he was conceived or not? Did it take a little while for God to make him Jesus after he was conceived? I mean, come on, people. Do you think I enjoy saying things like this? What kind of decadence has hit us that I have to say these things? It's disgusting that I have to talk about the precious gift of life in such a clinical way. What has happened to us that we're, that we're engaging in such filthy, degraded casuistry about woman? and her life givingness. What has happened to us as men that we're playing games with little ones bearing the image of God? 
I suppose it's necessary because it costs so much to send our children to a classical Christian school. And Americans are poor. And, you know, it's hard for us to be able to afford a good education. Now, you know that I'm being cynical. I mean, at what point in the history of the world have we had the ability to celebrate womanhood as we have today? I mean, you know, the wealth of the entire universe has been poured out on the United States of America, and then the government votes to give us more. And here we are, well, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, really, does life really, I mean, you know, I mean, my wife and I, we use an I, I mean, I mean, you know, you just can't go being profligate with life. I mean, you know about the prodigal son. Prodigal isn't good. Life takes stewardship. It takes the, the rational and calculating stinginess of an accountant, or we're going to absolutely blow things to smithereens. (laughs) Oh, come on. Come on. You remember the first time your wife took your hand and put it on her womb and you felt your little one? You remember that? What'd you think? Oh, no, what have I done now? (laughs) It's so sad when couples get married and they decide that they're going to shut down their womanhood and be persons for a while. You know, and I'm so thankful to God. You know, as I get older, I just keep saying to Mary Lee over and over again, when I see my heart and know how wicked it is, I can just see endless ways that God has protected me from myself and my wife from me. And so when Mary Lee and I got married, (laughs) we hit the ground running. (laughs) And before we were in any way ready, in any way ready, we had a baby. And that's why Heather is the way she is. (laughs) That poor girl. (laughs) I I loved, oh, she, oh, I can't tell you the joy. I'd take her little chubby blondness. She'd just sit in my hands. Way up in the air and catch her, and she would, ha, 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 she'd just laugh. She'd, so I'd throw up and down and up and down and up and down. And oh, were we ready to have a child? Were we responsible parents? What do you think? Let me ask you were you ready to have a child? Were you a responsible mother? <laughs> and yet God does it. I remember, since we were sort of counterculture, you know, we were going to have a home birth. And it helped that John Raffensperger was the chief surgeon at Children's Memorial, and our parents were adamantly opposed, and he said, oh, no, no, no. Have them have a baby at home. The hospital is the most dangerous place in the world. And so we were okay, because they loved John Raffensperger, you know, he's a big doc. And so we took every class, watched every film strip, read every book. We had all them breathing exercises. I mean, we did everything. We were intense. And we had a midwife who was good, and we had a physician who had worked in Santa Cruz where they did all them home births with midwives and stuff. I mean, we were ready. And then Mary Lee says, I think I'm in labor. We were cleaning a house, and I go, oh, okay, we better leave, right? So we go home, and she says, oh, man, I forgot diapers. Would you run to Kmart and get diapers? 
You remember saying that to me? Yeah, yeah. And so I say, okay, stupid me. You know. And so I get in the car, go get diapers. I come back, sweetie, how are you doing? I got the diapers. And I go in, and she, Heather's crowning. And I'm like, you know, who cares how I am? But can I just tell you for a second, (laughs) I was like, no, no, this was not part of the arrangement. No! And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the front door, and our ditzbrain midwife is going out of town camping with her boyfriend, right? But she decides just to stop by just to see how things are. And within how many minutes? Five, six, seven, ten? Within ten minutes, it's all over. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. You all know Mary Lee, or most of you do. And you know Mary Lee is tough, right? She don't scream or nothing. <laughs> she, Mary Lee's one tough woman. You all know that, right? Okay, I mean, she's married to me, you know? After it's all over, Mary Lee looks at me and she says, you know, none of the movies, none of the books, none of the breathing, none of the lectures could ever have prepared me for that. You're not ready to be a good mother. You're already done being a mother, and you're still not a good one. Seriously, you're not. I am not a good father, Women are not ready for childbirth. God is sovereign over life. And God gives life as he chooses. And we need to restore our love for life. Because it is gorgeous. Women, I've told you this before, and you're going to accuse me of being flattery, but I want to tell you, this is true. Every man wants his wife to have long hair. Now, that's not what I was going to tell you, but I'm telling you that just so you're aware that I'm willing to make a generalization that's unpopular, okay? Now, let me tell you what I really am going to tell you. Every single woman is beautiful to every single man. There is no such thing as an ugly woman. And you say, oh, Tim, you're just so pathetically you're just disgusting. Just move on. Can we have the scripture, please? Well, I am talking about scripture. The whole point of the story of Elizabeth and Mary is the beauty of womanhood. An old woman gives birth is beautiful. You say, oh, no, she wouldn't have been beautiful. I say, ha! You see her womb swelling. You're going to tell me she's not beautiful. What do I do? I go out to my apple tree, and it's hanging with apples, and I say, but it's such an ugly tree. It's gorgeous. When has there ever been a woman who has been pregnant with the life of God that has not been drop-dead gorgeous? Don't you realize that woman is beautiful to man because she is life giver. God's wired men to love women, not just your wife. And you say, well, yeah, that's the problem. And I say, get your head out of the gutter. Look at the beauty of it. 
woman is beautiful because she is a life giver. She gives you life when she's 90. She gives you life when she's six. And you say, oh, well, I don't want to hear about that. I say, okay, you're just ruined. This world with its sin has ruined you. Would you open your eyes and see the beauty of womanhood? Would you please see the beauty of womanhood? And I'm not talking to the men because the men all know what I'm talking about. Men, are you with me? It's all women. Stephen doesn't raise his hand, but that's because Sebra tells him not to do that. <laughs> but if I, if I were to talk to him privately, he'd admit it to me. There is no way we're going to end the bloodshed until we realize that Jesus had barely been conceived when he gave joy and when he was blessed. You say, well, yeah, but you know, Tim, that's a real like peachy keen way of thinking about it. But I mean, seriously, are you going to say that you know, like Mary Louise. Are you going to say that Mary Louise's life is, is good, you know? I mean, she's handicapped. And you can't go having handicapped children, you know? I mean, really, quality of life, you know? And, you know, what's her quality of life, you know? I mean, you know, she doesn't eat. She can't talk. She can't walk. I mean, come on, Tim. It's all peachy keen for you to go all, you know. But some of us are realists. Some of us actually run the numbers. And furthermore, you're not her father, and it's easy for you to say. You know that in England, the United States, and Canada today, over 90% of the Down syndrome children are killed in the womb. 90%. Did you know that? Have you ever known a Down syndrome adult, child? Any of you? Uh, on the scale of quality of life, and you've got over here Hugh Hefner, and over here a Down syndrome child, who has a better quality of life? <laughs> I always used to think about that with Hugh Hefner. After the first service, somebody said, you know, he died. Yep, yep, I know he died. Actually, I knew he died 30 years ago. He was a walking dead man. You looked at his eyes. There was nothing there. He was utterly degraded. Let that be a lesson to you who are tempted by pornography. Have you watched during our worship services as Mary has walked across the back of the, of the sanctuary? Have you watched that? Have you noticed how young men are doing this? What do you think is the value of a young man taking care of Mary Louise during worship? Do you, are you so sure you know what the world can bear and what your wife can bear and what you can bear? Do you really think you'll do a better job of calculating what you can stand than God does? Are you sure that you should be the one in charge of how many children you and your wife have? Are you sure that it's okay to take the chance of killing your unborn child as long as it's like a one in a hundred chance? Because after all, you drive a car. That's what a real famous pastor said to me when I said, don't support the pill. It has an abortifacient agency that's significant statistically. And he said, well, Tim, you know, I mean, if you get in the car with your kids on Sunday morning to go to church, you know, they could die on the way to church. Life has risks. I mean, is this really what Christian faith has been reduced to? Honestly. We are so stingy. 
And yet we've never been as wealthy as we are today. It's just so pathetic, you know? It's like the guys were given talents, right? One a lot, one medium, and one none. And America has flipped it upside down. It's the guy that was given a lot that buries it, (laughs) you know? And the guy with one, he just spreads that one all around. You know, that's the Southern Hemisphere today, you know? Southern Hemisphere, they have nothing, (laughs) you know? And they're having children. And they're laughing all the way to the bank, the bank of heaven. People, Jesus was only several days old. And Elizabeth, that godly woman, said, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. We have to recover our love of a woman. There's no path back other than to love woman. We have to love woman as God made her. God made her the life giver. You don't love something that you're always trying to restrain. And you, you have all these objections. You want to talk to me about postpartum depression and, and needing to get an education and all this crud. And don't you realize that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Do you seriously think that if you have children that God will not be able to afford them? Come on. You say, well, it's not a matter of God being able to afford them. It's a matter of my wife not having the emotional maturity to be able to discipline them and train them and instruct them and love them. And I say, well, what's wrong with you? And you say, what do you mean, me? I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about my wife. And I say, "Uh, yeah, she's your wife. And what are you? Uh, A man? No, 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 no. What are you with respect to her? Uh, What are you trying to get at? Uh, H-U-S-B-A-N-D. Oh, yeah, I'm her husband. Oh, yeah. And what does a husband do? I don't know. Husbandry. Husbandry. A husband husbands his wife. As a gardener gardens his garden. As a husbandry is the care of a flock or a tree. In other words, you are responsible to create everything around your wife that conduces to her freedom to give issue to her life-givingness in the best of circumstances, with the greatest support emotionally, with the greatest fidelity to the marriage that she never fears. That she sees that you're not going to seed. That she sees that you're not stingy with the things of life, but that you celebrate life because God pours it out on us. Don't talk to me about what your wife is like. She's your wife. You have an obligation to make her the mother she needs to be. That is your calling from God. And you say, well, I can't restore the years the locusts have eaten. I mean, her mother was awful. And, you know, I can't expect her to be good when her mother was awful. And I say, are you serious? I mean, honestly? So nobody can rise above their father or mother? Stupid Jonathan. Somebody forgot to tell Jonathan that. 
You say, what Jonathan? I say Saul's son, Jonathan. Listen, you're not a victim, women. You are a woman. And God has made your child to be completely and entirely and utterly devoted to you. And I don't care whether your husband enables you or not. You are woman. You are mother. And your child's soul depends upon your care for that child irrespective of your child's father. I have such inspiration preaching to my fan club right now. You know, I mean, honestly. Ah, on the left here, we have an exhibit of uh, something which I better not describe. <laughs> you know, but I mean a living manifestation. Oh, it's so beautiful. So listen, women. Don't let anybody patronize you. Don't buy any of the victim stuff. You are mother and woman. You are a life giver. And your children were in your womb. They felt your sorrow. They rejoiced with your joy. They nursed at your breast. And if you raise an eyebrow when you don't like what their father is saying, they are in mutiny immediately against their father. All you have to do with your children, because of how they're made by God, is just look at your children when you don't like what your husband's doing, and just do this. <laughs> and it's over. He's emasculated. The mutiny is full bore. And he will be walking the plank if he doesn't watch himself. <laughs> oh. Listen. Jesus, when he was conceived, he brothered every man that has ever been conceived. That's what Tom Torrance says. He was a Scottish theologian of the last century. And Jesus has brothered us at conception. Jesus calls us from conception. Life is beautiful. Life is given by God. And before one day of yours came into existence, God had already set you apart to belong to him. And it's irretrievable, it's irrefragable, it's era, whatever era's stuff we can say. It's hopelessly permanent. And your children are given you by God to mark with the sign of the covenant and to raise in such a way that you are not a soft, uh, um, weak woman who gives in to her children. And it's not enough for you to teach them intellectually. They can get that anywhere. What they need to get from you is a proper sense of obedience to God by them obeying you. And that forms the character and the soul of your children. That's the thing we're neglecting today with soccer and dancing and music lessons and, and, and schooling. What you need to do is form the soul and character of your children. There is a wonderful um, booklet by uh, 1700s pastor over in Manchester, England, and his name was John Angel James, and it's called Female Piety. And he talks about motherhood here. One of the things he says is, listen, mothers, if you were to have your child because of your negligence break his back or have a limb disfigured because you weren't watching and you didn't care for your child. How would you feel? And he says, and yet, this is what you do with their immortal soul. You create children 
who are completely corrupted by your negligence in raising their character, and yet you would never allow your child to hurt himself physically. Now, you get the point, right? You get the point. What you as women need to do is you need to form the character of the next generation that will be the pastors and the elders and the tightest two women of this church. We need to die. You need to die. You can't die if you have not formed your children in such a way that they obey you. Yeah, they're wonderful. (laughs) They're beautiful. Yeah, they're cute. Yep, yep, yep. But really, at some point, somewhere, Elias is going to have to learn to obey. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, it's been fun. He's so cute. And his mother doesn't want him, his grandmother doesn't want him disciplined. Where is he? Oh, he's, he's out there. Yeah, okay, so he won't be embarrassed. So should I talk about you, Josiah? <laughs> So listen, can we fall in love with life as a church? Can we fall in love with forming the character of our children? Can we return to biblical motherhood? Can we love it? Can we as men create an environment in which our wives are impermeable to the scoffing of their parents and their sisters and brothers-in-law over having children? Because we've inoculated them and not with some cell line. (laughs) We've inoculated them with the word of God and our joy in their womanhood. Right? And then who cares what the in-laws say, right? Y'all with me? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful mothers. And Father, we pray that you will protect them from the fiery darts of Satan. We pray, Lord, that when they're weak, that they will plead with you for strength. When they're impatient, Lord, we pray that they will have a real experience of your mercy to them as sinners. We pray that their children will overlook their failures. And Father, we pray that increasingly we will see in our children in this church the character of godliness which respects authority, which honors womanhood, and which is pure. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.